What's up? Welcome to the Fit Trials Podcast. I'm Tori. I'm an online fitness coach possessed by cultivating fitness transformations. I take the exhausted, tried everything individual and breed them into a healthy lifestyle machine. With guest appearances from other entrepreneurs in all industries, we tackle the trials and tribulations of fitness and business together and have a little fun in between. So if you're ready to level up, let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm here with my friend and colleague from previous work, uh, Elliot Grieve, and he is a mental health therapist. So I figured it would be a really great conversation to bring him on and just talk about all things mental health. So hey, Elliot. Hello, Tori. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Can you can you introduce yourself in in more thorough detail? Like, what's your background? What do you do? Um, what are kind of like? I know you're going through quite a, a significant educational route right now. Like, just give a, give them a background of who you are, what you do, why you're here. Yeah, of course. Uh, again, my name is Elliot, and I am a, what is called an LPCC, which stands for Licensed Practicing Counselor Candidate. Um, I recently graduated from the University of Denver last spring with a master's degree in adolescent addictions counseling. And um, as Tori mentioned, the the education doesn't necessarily stop after after school is over, unfortunately. Well, also fortunately too, because you are constantly able to learn new things and constantly able to further immerse yourself into the world of mental health. Um, but right now, basically what I'm doing is with that LPCC credential, I am essentially... Uh, due, due to the fact that I am new to the field, I am underneath someone else right now. Um, someone else is supervising me while I'm doing my therapy, and I'm able to go to them for any questions or concerns or ideas that I have, just to make sure I don't uh, mess anything up or mess anyone up, or um, you know, just go to them with new ideas and whatnot. And as far as the addiction stuff goes, I um, actually just got registered today for my first big test that will allow me to be what's called a CAC-2, which stands for Certified Addictions Counselor of the Second Degree, which essentially allows me to, um, I, I'm already treating those with substance use disorder, but essentially it'll allow me to do it without being supervised. It's it's very, very, um, very confusing for someone that really isn't in the field or potentially confusing, I should say. Essentially what it is, is that I'm able to see clients individually and do groups if I have a an LPCC, but in order to um, see those that have substance use disorder, I need the additional licensure to in order to see them. But fortunately, my agency, which is called the Life Recovery Centers, is has other um, has other ways of of moving around that. So I'm able to still see those with substance use disorder, given the fact that I'm under somebody else. Um, I also tend to focus in trauma as well. Um, mainly addictions and trauma are my are my two main focuses right now within the realm of mental health. Um, because the two of them are so comorbid with one another. And yeah, that's, I guess that's basically it in a, in a nutshell. Damn, that is awesome. I love that you are a huge advocate for, for mental health. I think that is amazing. And I like that you, I like that mental health professionals are required to go through so many licensures. Um, that, that definitely, I think, helps prove that you are so qualified in what you do. And, and so I want to touch a little bit on 
the addictions counseling um, because I feel like, you know, this being a fitness podcast, I think eating disorders are very much in that same thought process realm where at least I want to um, explore that a little bit. So, you know, like there's definitely more than one addiction um, in all of life, substance addiction, food addiction, um, you know, toxic relationship addiction. Can you describe the mental process of addiction, how they are formed and how do you mediate them? Yes, of course. So there are a lot of there are a lot of factors that go into addiction and obviously on the forefront of it when you think of the word addiction you automatically think of substance use and those that are addicted to drugs or alcohol but um the the actual definition of addiction is someone who cannot control them doing some sort of external thing and it is causing internal or external harm um and despite them being aware of this harm they still continue perpetuating said behavior um, that's the the more modern version of the of the uh, definition of addiction, and obviously we can spend you know weeks and weeks discussing and debating the the actual semantics behind the word. Um, but you're very very right, Tori. The um, the congruencies behind um, eating disorders and behind addiction itself, they're actually they affect the brain in the exact same way. Mm. In fact, forty um, percent, around forty percent, and obviously we, this can be debated too. 40% of addiction comes down to genetic factors, meaning that someone who is addicted to something, whether if it's food, drugs, sex, or alcohol, um, 40% of it comes down to their genetics, and the rest of it obviously comes down to like their environment and what they've experienced in life. And um, in, re- in the realm of eating disorders, it's actually a little-known fact that eating disorders are the most lethal mental health disorder out there because they are so often integrated with depression and anxiety and suicidality. And more often than not with the clients that we work with and with what we have learned, um, eating disorders are the number one cause of death simply because they are often so integrated with those other mental illnesses. And typically if someone has an eating disorder, they're gonna have anxiety, depression, things like that. I'm speaking very generally, obviously, not everyone is gonna have that, but there is a lot of research behind how how detrimental um, eating disorders are. And with how they're actually formulated in the brain, how an addiction starts originally is someone repeating a behavior over and over again to the point where it becomes habit in the brain. Now, I'm not gonna go into the the meticulous and the, the biological details that go into how an addiction is formed, but basically what happens is in the front parts of your brain, which is called the frontal lobe, which is in charge of uh, decision-making, rationale, emotional expression, things like that, when you, perform um, a behavior over and over and over again, your brain essentially becomes used to um, experiencing that behavior to the point when if you don't experience that behavior anymore, you essentially freak out. Now, in the realm of when you externalize, or sorry, internalize an an external thing, such as eating a cheeseburger or taking a shot of alcohol, you are releasing chemicals into your brain um, the most common one, the, the pretty uh, ubiquitous one among our society is is dopamine. That's the most common reward chemical. So if you essentially overload your brain with dopamine on a consistent basis, your brain is going to stop naturally producing that dopamine. Essentially, the, the receptors in your brain are going to be firing off at a very, very consistent rate, like a normal healthy brain that is. And if you were to um, do something that would basically cause an overload of dopamine and do it 
uh, consistently over and over and over again, when your brain stops producing that, it's going to demand more dopamine to essentially allow it to function. And that is how addiction starts. Now, obviously, when you are dealing with something like a substance, it is much more profound and much more of a uh, drastic impact when it comes to those chemical imbalances in the brain. It can be a derivative of anything, whether if it's food or sex or, or gambling, whatever it may be. But um, more often than that, when, when you're dealing with the drastic changes that happen very quickly, it's in the realm of substances. Um, so like cocaine, for instance, if you were to do um, some cocaine, you're, you're essentially getting about 200%, and that can be disputed, obviously, more dopamine than your brain is used to. So if you do that drug consistently, your brain will... To, to a certain degree, stop making it depending on the purity and depending on how much you use, and also depending on the genetic factors within your brain. Um, it, it comes down to a very, very, very biological traits, and it comes down to how basically susceptible the person is to addiction. Like if you were to take 10 people and put them into a room and, um, and give them all cocaine, as unethical as that would be, <laughs> The, the chances are you would probably get about seven or eight of them addicted to it, depending on how much you would give them. And it wouldn't affect everybody the same way because it comes down to genetic factors. And I think something that's often misconstrued in our society is how um, people think that there's, there are, there's power over addiction and how it's simply a, like a choice and it can be stopped whenever when it, it's just much more complicated than that. The brain does not have the ability to essentially switch back to normal once you have altered it in that manner. It's not irrevocable, mind you. It, it, some of it can be to a certain degree, but um, given the right circumstances and the right uh, care, the brain is able to repair itself, but obviously it's very taxing. That is so fascinating. I was just talking to someone about this, how it's like, you know, people will look at people with addictions or eating disorders and they'll say like, you know, just why can't you just stop? It's like, why can't you just stop? And it's like, it is not that simple. Mm -hmm. Correct. It's not. Um, that is so fascinating. Um, so wh where do you think is the line drawn where it's like, oh, like I am enjoying this, you know, substance or whatever this is, like, where do you think it crosses into addiction? Like, what are like some defining points that kind of cross it into that ter ter territory? Uh, good question. Well, if you look at the diagnostic criteria for substance use disorder, some of the things are like, do you still continue to use substances in hazardous environments, such as drinking and driving? Um, when you use the substances, are you doing them so much that you are doing it to a degree where you're trying to quell some sort of interpersonal issue or some sort of mental issue within yourself? Um, have you taken more of them without realizing the detrimental effects? Have you had to spend a lot of time recovering from the effects? Have you missed work or social events or family events because of the substance? Have you obviously experienced withdrawal symptoms? Um, and it comes down to those criteria. Now, if you look at the specifics of said criteria, though, and obviously I, I listed um, just the kind of the, the spark notes of that 
if, if you will. Mm-hmm. But if there's about, I think there's, oh, pop quiz time. I think eight, eight to nine criteria that you could possibly have in the realm of substance use disorder. If you meet two to three of those, you're considered to have mild substance use disorder. Four to five is moderate and six plus is going to be considered severe. Um, and it all comes down to basically how much the substance is affecting your life and that denial piece. It, when, you, when you deal with someone, and I deal with this all the time at work, you know, the amount of clients that I hear who say something like, yeah, I don't have a drug problem, but if I don't do this drug, I'll have like a panic attack or like cold sweats or things like that. Mm. The, the denial piece is the biggest factor that we see personally. Um, and it's it's very, very difficult to deal with at times because that denial is so strong for some people. And and overall, denial does have a purpose. Its whole purpose is to keep us safe and to keep us in our little bubbles. And it can take all sorts of shapes and forms. But when it comes to that, that crossing the line, I would say the most um, prominent one is if you're recognizing or if you're trying to convince yourself that you are able to stop, but in the back of your mind subconsciously, you know that it'd be a little bit more harder than you're trying to convince yourself. Um, A really famous psychologist once said, in a world full of lies, the most dangerous ones are the ones we tell ourselves. And I think that there's just a lot of truth to that. That is profound. And I can totally relate to that on a personal level. I personally struggled with disordered eating. And it's like, I mean, I, I will tell this story very, very soon on the podcast, but like there was, there was one night I was sitting on the floor of like my dirty apartment in Salt Lake (laughs) and was looking myself in the mirror and was like, just stop. Like, why can't you stop? Like just, and it's, it's so, if you've never experienced it or like seen it firsthand in someone that, you know, it's very abstract to describe how uncontrollable it really is. And that, I feel like that's a very like profound piece in, in understanding addiction. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I I think that when, when you're dealing with addictions or substance use disorder or anything involving mental health, at times it is so hard to either physically or metaphorically look at yourself in the mirror to the point when you can see what is happening. You can see what is going on, but that denial is so loud and that denial is its sole purpose is to keep you safe. Um, but in reality, the denial is only enabling said behaviors. It's just, it's, it's fascinating, I think, but it's also terrible. And I will say too, that one thing that I always tell my clients, and it's very, very simple, and I'm sure you can relate to this, it's that once you become aware, you can no longer back to be going ignorant again. You could try, but that awareness piece is going to be screaming in the back of your mind, no matter how hard you try when it comes to trying to go back to ignorance. Yeah, that's so true. I I think I've I've talked with a couple of other people about that for sure how important and like pivotal self-awareness really is. Like once you finally achieve that, you're right. You can't just go back. It's always going to be there kind of this nagging thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people um and maybe you agree with this, maybe not, but a lot of people have the argument that mental health precedes physical health, that it's more important. What, what is your, what are your thoughts on that? Ooh, good question. Very good question. I think that this kind of ties into the whole notion that um, mental health is not as black and white as physical health can be to a certain degree. And I think that without one, you certainly can't have the other. Um, Good question. I got to chew on that. Yeah, I, I truly think that it depends where you are in your state of life. 
like when I had um, my, my shoulder surgery, I had to sort of put my physical health to the side. Well, in regards to like not working out in regards to um, just not having to be physically fit and just sitting on my butt while allowing myself to heal. But while I was allowing myself to heal, I then had to find myself um, mentally putting myself first because I, I'm just not used to sitting on my butt all day. I, I think it very much depends on the situation. And I think it ties into that awareness piece. But I also think too that, that it ties into what we call the, the five domains of the self, um, meaning that this, these are the five things that basically make us human. So we have, as you said, our physical and our mental selves, but we also have our emotional selves, our relational selves, and our spiritual selves. All those are pretty self-explanatory, but what I mean by spiritual too is not so much in the connotation of religion or, or like meditating when you think of the word spirituality. I mean, it could be if you want it to be, but um, what I mean by spirituality are things that are genuinely good for your soul, as corny as that may sound. Things that you do only for you with no expectations or requirements and things that you do solely for your own satisfaction. And what I always tell my clients is that if they're experiencing distress and if they're experiencing maybe thoughts of relapse or, or any sort of stress in general, to ask themselves how they are addressing those five domains. Maybe their, their relationship at home is, is not as strong as it used to be and it's affecting them relationally, or maybe they are experiencing something very, very um, traumatic in their lives and they're not being emotionally honest with themselves. I think that the five domains are something that should be taken into consideration all the time. And the second someone says all my five domains are good and like, I don't need to do any more work, that's when complacency sets in and it's just not possible. You should always be addressing the five domains um, because in a way, if you're not addressing the five domains, you're neglecting yourself and you're, you're neglecting what it means to be human. Absolutely. And that you, this is not the first time that I've heard of the five domains because it's been adapted in multiple ways by like tons of philosophers throughout time. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that that really speaks loudly in saying like, this is actually something. And it's so true that you know, if you're working on one, like, you know, maybe you're fo putting more focus on one versus the other four, or like maybe there's two that kind of go hand in hand. Like I feel like mental and emotional health can kind of go hand in hand. Yep. Um, right. And there's, there's been, I want to know what you think about this because um, I have, maybe you've heard this, but like the, the mind is the body and the body is the mind. Oh yes, yep. In, in response to like when people are feeling particular emotional or mental stress, their physical body starts to emulate responses to that stress. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree with the body is the mind and the mind is the body? Oh yes, absolutely. In fact, um, that comes down to one of the most famous books that was written um, in the realm of trauma, which is called The Body Keeps the Score, which the title says it all. Your, your body does literally keep the score when it comes to your experiences and what you have gone through in life. Um, and, and with the body and mind and what you, what you mentioned, what we also use with our clients is we have what's called the crazy eights, or we, we try to bring the crazy eights to the forefront. What I mean by crazy eights is making an eight figure formation with um, your, and I can't do it via audio, but, but it's um, the one bubble of the eight is your brain, and the other bubble of the eight is your heart, and how they sort of synonymously um, interact with one another, and how you could, quote, get lost in your crazy eights. What I mean by that is what you think affects the way you feel, and what you feel affects the way you think. 
And if you get lost in your crazy eights, you eventually get sort of lost in your feelings and thoughts to the point where you sort of lose objectivity and you sort of just lose your sense of self. Um, so you experience that, but not only that, your, your body does quite literally keep the score with your experiences. Um, I mean, Tori, you know me personally, I have this, this pretty big scar on my forehead and that was from a car accident that I was in back in 2013. I was, um, with some of my friends and we were pulling out of a Chipotle and I was in the back seat. And then as we were pulling out a car T-boned us and, um, my phone whom, that I was you know, playing with at the time, hit my forehead and um, caused this pretty severe laceration. And what's so interesting, what honestly kind of spearheaded my interest in trauma and how our body responds to trauma is to this day, and I experienced this literally two weeks ago when I was back in my home state of Ohio, to this day, when I pull out of that Chipotle parking lot, my knees get a little tense, my shoulders kind of get a little tense, uh, my jaw clenches, and it, it's all um, happens subconsciously because your body keeps the score, meaning that your body got you through a traumatic experience where it thought it was going to potentially be in danger or die earlier. And when it experienced that, it I mean, for all I know, when I experienced the car accident, my knees might have tensed up, my jaw might have clenched, et cetera, et cetera. And my body knows it got me through it. So it's going to emulate those behaviors once more because it did it once and it's going to do it again. That's essentially how trauma works in a very uh, big nutshell, essentially. That is so twisted. Also, like, never go to Chipotle ever again. Lesson <laughs> no, I'll still <laughs> Lesson learned. Don't go there. <laughs> I personally am a Qdoba fan over Chipotle, so. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Personal opinion, whatever. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually had um, a similar thing. I was in a car accident, um, and it was uh, as a result of um, drifting. And so anytime it snows and it gets a little icy and I like either pull out of a driveway or something and I can feel my car like drift a little bit, like my heart just like pounds like crazy. And it's, I think probably it's like a symptom of that because I never felt that before that accident. And it's not like something that like I have to pull over or anything, but it's just like, right. That, that little panic response where like my blood gets really hot and like the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I just like kind of get a little lightheaded. It's just, it's very weird. It's a very strange sensation. Absolutely. Um, what do you think, like what role do you think fitness can play in mental health? Like there's a lot of, um, you know, like fitness therapy that people go through. Like there was actually, there was a really fascinating, um, study that was done, you're, you're probably familiar with it, um, a neuroscientist who specialized in working with war veterans, he would, you know, when they lose a limb, when, a, when someone loses a limb, they experience incredible amounts of pain as if that limb were still yep. there. Mm -hmm. And this neuroscientist put um, like a mirror in front of these veterans who had, who had lost limbs and made it look like they still had them and it moderated their pain. Like yes, I, I have heard of that study. And I think that with the, um, the whole notion of that study was the brain was so used to having that limb for that long that it's not uncommon for the brain to sort of recede back to what um, it was formerly experiencing and your body knowing that it experienced that at one point. I, I, I do recall reading that, um, but I gotta admit, I don't know the details behind the study, but I, I do know that when it comes to being in touch with our physical selves, 
that is, and I mean this quite literally, one of the most important parts when it comes to overcoming all mental illnesses, not just addiction. And I do it with my clients um, all the time. Like, for instance, if a, if a client is feeling dysregulated, I will have them, you know, put both feet in the ground, put their hands in their lap and have them, um, you know, do some deep breathing. But what I do about the deep breathing is I have them inhale for four seconds and then exhale for six seconds, as long as they're physically able. And I have them literally count because that allows the body to sort of ground itself in a way where it really recognizes its senses again. And for um, someone who is having some severe anxiety, having them identify six things they see in the room, five things they can touch, four things they can hear, and three things they can smell, and et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of getting to the roots of the body to recognize, um, or I guess, allow the body to recognize that it's still a human body. Despite all of the chaos that could be going on around it, it's still a human body. It's still You're still in your own skin, and you're able to um, work with that, essentially. But Within the realm of substance use and integrating fitness into that, um, as, as we've discussed previously, Tori, I'm a huge, huge advocate and have experienced myself what it is like to help quell a mental illness um, or at least an acute mental illness with, with fitness because not only is it um, physiologically proven to affect, have positive effects in the brain as far as releasing endorphins and providing the chemicals that once I, I previously mentioned on here, providing chemicals to the brain to feel pleasure, but you're also um, kind of grounding your body in a way where it's able to recognize what it's capable of. In the realm of, of substance use, um, people are so used to that instant gratification. And this is something we all experience as a society. We pull our phones out and turn our phones on, they turn on instantly. If we turn our computers on, they turn on instantly. We put our cars in the ignition, they also turn on instantly. And if anything is delayed, like an internet explorer sort of thing like that, we're gonna be a little bit um, thrown into some dysregulation potentially. Now, the, the cool part about fitness is that you're able to train your body to feel the pleasure and feel those, those endorphins the more you work on it to the point where it's sort of like the on switch when you turn your phone on only it's essentially in your brain the amount of people that i know personally whether they're therapists or clients or just friends like yourself tori who have overcome mental illness by allowing fitness to become a huge huge part of their lives is is honestly incredibly pervasive um, not only do they feel a sense of accomplishment because they're allowing their bodies to reach their fullest amount of functionality, but they're also able to feel a sense of accomplishment because they feel healthier, they look healthier, they interact with people in a more healthy way. And I know you can relate to this story. When I have a wonderful workout at very early in the morning, it sucks getting up, but man, you just feel so good the rest of the day after that. Mm. Um, that just, you know, it can't be refuted. It kind of depends on who you are as a person. That's typically the unanimous response when people are asked those questions, as long as they're habituated into that. Now, that being said, as, as everyone who has gotten into fitness knows, it's not easy at first. Um, you have to quite literally train your brain to understand that what you're doing is good and, and it might be kind of um, discomforting at times with the, the sweating and the pain of working out afterwards and kind of dealing with all that stuff. But they say that it takes 21 days to form a habit and there is a lot of physiological truth behind that. Um, the more you're able to rehearse a memory within your brain to the point where it becomes a, a, sense, a sense of habit, the more you are able to sort of ground yourself and to recognize what you're able to do as far as integrating fitness within mental health. 
Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. That like more than answered my question. Um, I mean, I guess like, I, so I no, didn't go to therapy until I was 23 years old. So last year and the depth of how it has helped me is so substantial that I cannot believe I wasn't in therapy sooner. I kind of, I was one of those people that was like, therapy is for the week. Like I'm mentally tough enough to not require it. Like this is normal. Like, uh, you know, I first started experiencing anxiety when I was 16 years old and, you know, my mom took me into the doctor and, and I had my first anxiety attack, like at the doctor's office, um, just from being just like overwhelmed. Um, and you know, I probably should have gone to therapy like that week (laughs) and started there. Um, but you know, here I was, you know, seven, you know, six, seven years later, um, going to therapy for the first time for stuff like that. And so when do you think is a good time for people to recognize they might benefit from therapy or counseling, or do you think everyone should go to therapy or counseling at some point at some point in their lives? Yeah, definitely the second one, Tori. I I think that (laughs) Yeah, I think that, you know, life can be very, very hard. We all, no matter who we are, what social status we have, we all experience hardships in life, whether if it's death or financial issues or career issues or a loss of a relationship, we all have to to deal with with arduousness at some point in our lives. And um, to, to decide if someone has to go to therapy to help with these issues does not determine if they're weak or strong. In fact, you know, what I tell a lot of my clients, what I've had to tell myself too in the past, I still have to tell myself this, is it takes a lot of strength to ask for help. It takes a lot of vulnerability to ask for help. And it's not in the sense of like, I can't handle this on my own. It's the fact that I want to get better. I want to get better and I want to improve myself and learn from this situation in order to be the best person that I can be. I think that at every point in our lives, we can benefit from therapy. Some will need to be in therapy their entire lives because of things they've experienced. some will go to therapy for three or four sessions and be done. I think that the the biggest piece of advice I could say to anyone who is considering going to therapy is to, or someone who is in therapy and they're not quite getting the process or they're not quite getting that that instance uh, cure is to just trust the process because the tr- the process is yours. It's only yours. You have no other option than to trust the process and where you are right now and where we are in life is exactly where we're meant to be. And even if it's through the hard stuff, tension makes things grow, experience makes you grow. And the more, I don't want to say the more hardships you go through, the stronger that you'll be because no one wants to go through hardships. But I can say from, a, from my own perspective that, you know, some of the, the darkest times in my life allow me to come to some of the most in-depth realizations of my life and who I am as a person. Um, it, it just, it all comes down to the person individually. I, I can't make a blanket statement saying that everyone should go to therapy at age 18. Um, although it's probably beneficial to do it because you're entering adulthood, but it all depends on the person and all depends on what they're going through. And I think that overall, if someone is feeling shame about going into therapy, um, or someone is feeling like they're weak, honestly, it's, like I said, it shows a sign of strength in my opinion, because you're trying to ask for help and you're trying to get better. And I, I get the whole societal stigma um, as far as the classic like comic book strips or the classic like therapist cartoons and, and, and the stigmas behind it. I, and to a certain, certain degree, there's some truth to those. But I do think overall that having a listening ear and being a part of the therapeutic environments allows um, someone to foster a lot of growth within themselves because 
you know, how often do you, do you enter into an environment where you're just reflecting on yourself for 30 minutes to an hour? Uh, it's, it's, it's not common. And honestly, what I, what I always tell people who are entering in the world as therapists, who are very worried about how effective their skills are going to be, truly the environment itself is, um, a, allows someone to foster their own sense of ability and their own sense of growth because they're reflecting on themselves and because that environment is there and it's consistent. That is so true. And like everything that you just said, there are so many, like, this is why I love fitness. There are so many congruencies in, in everything that you just said between mental health and fitness. Like, you know, you say when you go to therapy, like you're kind of breaking down like old patterns and old ways of thinking and building stronger ones. And it's so true. When you go to the gym, you're breaking down old muscle fibers to build on new ones. And so why I be really believe in fitness and mental health is you can learn so much from it. There's so much symbolism in it. Oh, yeah. um, you know, trusting the process is the same thing when you hop on a, a fitness program. You're trusting that process. It's new. It's uncomfortable. It's going to be probably a little painful, a little sore at times, but it's going to make you come out on the other end 10 times stronger than where you started. And I think that building your muscles in the gym is so true as well as building, you know, your, your mental toughness and your mental muscles as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and actually I use that analogy of building your muscles at the gym with a lot of my clients because a lot of them can relate to that. You know, the, mm -hmm. everyone, almost everyone has gone through a workout and then they're sore the next day. And, um, I have had clients and myself in my own therapy where I leave therapy and the next day it's like, wow, do I have a headache or am I just like emotionally exhausted right now? And it's all about, it's all about the process itself. And and honestly, Tori, I love your point when it comes to um, sort of critiquing yourself and trying to analyze your own process. And that is one thing that I wanted to make sure I touched on with this podcast is that, you know, we are our own worst critics. If we have an immaculate body and an immaculate face and, and everything it may be and have a pimple on our foreheads, what are we going to be focusing on? Mm -hmm. We are naturally our own worst critics and we naturally... Um, compare ourselves to our old self and other people and all this stuff. And what I always tell my clients too is to let other people know that they're coming to therapy if they're okay with it so they can potentially see a change in their demeanor. Um, it's sort of like if you are trying to lose weight for so long, but you're looking at yourself in the mirror every single day, you're not going to be able to notice those subtle changes because you're looking at yourself in the mirror every single day. But it, it, until you come across someone who says, hey, you know, like you've lost a good amount of weight. I can tell you're working really hard in the gym. And that obviously feels really, really wonderful to hear. The same thing works with mental health. Oftentimes we can't notice our own progress because we're so, we're so, uh, what's the word? accusatory of our own process and we're always trying to get better as to our, our best ability to the point where we don't where we diminish our own little small battles that we win obviously uh, if we could fix this and if i could do this myself because i know i do this um it'd be much better but unfortunately we're our own worst critics we always want us to be our best selves so i think that when it comes to fitness and mental health to hold ourselves to that standard and to recognize that little subtle changes that happen every single day are still changes and they're still progress nonetheless. Absolutely. I want to um, touch back on that self-awareness piece that we talked about earlier. Um, so I have my clients complete a weekly check-in form that helps them with self-awareness on stress, sleep, training, hunger, um, setting intentions for the following week. What are some mental health checks that you have your clients do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? 
Good question. Um, I, I wouldn't say that they're checked specifically. I would say that if they encounter anything during the week that they want to process in therapy to, uh, I have like a business line where I keep um, available from like 9am to 9pm on weekdays. And then like I, when I turn it off, I still get the text, but I get them later, obviously. If, if they come across anything they want to discuss, just to send me a quick text and I can table it and make a note of it and jot it down for later. Um, for certain clients that are very, very very heavy into addiction. I do have them track every once in a while, like their sleep patterns, their eating patterns, things of that nature, because not only because of that accountability piece, but we're also offering structure and pairing that positive structure with something as positive as mental health or fitness for that matter. I think that those check-ins are very, very beneficial because you're not only bringing in that accountability aspect, but you're bringing in that, um, that community aspect as well. I think people often underestimate the community aspect and that sort of interpersonal aspect when you're interacting with someone else when it comes to mental health or, or fitness. Um, and, and one of the most classic examples when it comes to addictions, might be a little bit off track here, but it really comes to show of how truly important it is to be connected to other people is that there's this really famous podcast and it's, sorry, not a podcast, a, a TED talk. And it's um, titled, Everything You Know About Addiction is Wrong. And it basically talks about how there was this study in the 1980s where they, um, as unethical as it sounds, they got all these rats addicted to cocaine and meth. And they then had the rats spend their time in an isolated environment with water that was infused with cocaine or meth and then plain water. And the rats consumed so much of the drug-infused water that they actually ended up overdosing and dying. However, they did a follow-up experiment where they had all of the rats do the same thing. They got them addicted to drugs, but then they put them in sort of this rat enclosure where they were all together. They were all together and they were all, you know, a part of one another, essentially part of this rat community, if you will. And over time, they started to notice that the rats started drinking the normal water instead of the drug infused water. That's why one of the most common phrases um, when it comes to addiction is the opposite of addiction is connection. And that is personally why I choose to go to a gym that is almost 20 or 30 minutes away from where I live, even though I have one down the street that I can go to. I, because I choose to go to that gym because of the community aspect and because of that structure that's there. And I know that a lot of clients, when they come to therapy, they often really, really don't like it because they're, not, they're so not used to structure. But when that structure starts to be integrated in their lives, they love coming in and saying hi to the desk person and saying hi to the other therapist and saying hi to everyone. And they, they love that community aspect because it's so important. So I think that the fact that you check in with your clients so, so um, on a daily basis is, or weekly basis, as you said, is, is just truly wonderful because not only because of that accountability piece, but human beings are natural so social creatures. I mean, take the movie Castaway, for instance, if you've seen that, you know, he's mm -hmm. friends with the volleyball. And it comes down to very, very primal instincts where we as humans have to have that connection to a certain degree, because that's what we're essentially bred to do. That is so fat. I love studies like that. Like I just eat that up. Like I'm a sponge for that stuff. That is so Cool. I've loved this <laughs> so much. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting. Last, uh, last couple of questions. Um, I always like to ask my guests, what trials of fitness have they been put through in, in whatever capacity, physical, mental, emotional fitness? I know you already touched on the uh, Chipotle from hell um, <laughs> epidemic. Um, <laughs> but is there, is there anything else you want to talk about that was something big that you had to overcome? And how did you do it? 
yeah, I, I will touch on that because they're, I, I, I myself have been through um, three surgeries in my life. And anyone who knows me pretty well knows that fitness has been a huge part of my life since I was in middle school. Um, and I will say that I was, I knew it was going to be tough, especially with my knee surgery, because I wasn't able to run for so long. Um, I knew it was going to be tough, but I had no idea how tough it was going to be returning back to the gym and returning back to what I wanted to do again. And in fact, there's another member whom you and I both know, Tori, but we'll respect his anonymity, where he had a, uh, he recently had a brain surgery. And, um, and he, he had a brain surgery at the end of last September, and I was actually working at the gym, and he came in, and, I, and we were all so surprised to see him, because he has this big Frankenstein-looking scar on his forehead, and we were like, you know, what, what are you doing here? And he goes, you know what, I, I'm, I'm here just to do some walking on the treadmill. The doctor said that's okay, and I need this. I need this. I know that I'm not going to be as strong as I was, but I can't do anything to change it. I'm here, and I'm going to accept it and take it for what it's worth. And that right there, like, inspired me so much that day simply because I remember so well coming back to the gym after all of my surgeries, especially my shoulder and my knee one, thinking how much of my, my strength and how much of my stamina I had lost. But unfortunately, we have to integrate something called radical acceptance into the piece, meaning that we, we can't, as, as mad or as upset as we can be about something, we simply can't change it. And to sort of adjust our framework to the sense of being mad for a little bit is okay because that's very human, but not to the point where you're dwelling on it. Um, and I mean reflecting on it instead, reflecting versus dwelling. So dwelling is like blaming yourself and taking the whole like, you know, what was me stance where we're reflecting is bringing in that, that radical acceptance piece and learning how you can accommodate to that and help yourself with that. So um, that is one piece that I will say too. The other piece I wanted to say is, I mean, Tori, you know me personally. I'm a, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty big guy. I've never been the kind of person who has the the Brad Pitt washboard abs. Um, and I remember so well back in the day, I was trying so hard to do that. Can relate personally to some of the things that you've disclosed as far as like trying to have that that immaculate body. Um, and it got to the point where I read this article recently where it talked about how. A lot of times, you know, in our society, self-care is being preached so much nowadays, which I absolutely love because I think no matter who you are, what you're going through, self-care is just has to be such a prominent feature of your life no matter what. However, there are detrimental forms of self-care. And more often than not, people classify their self-care as laying on the couch, watching The Office or watching Netflix and scrolling through Instagram. Um, or scrolling through social media to a certain capacity. Obviously, that's not everybody, but I know I personally have done that a lot. Now, the human brain is naturally going to compare our, our lives to other people. Subconsciously, it's just going to happen. But I would challenge every person that is listening to this to really ask yourself if that self-care piece is truly self-care or if it's just sort of keeping it at surface level. When I say self-care, I mean doing, going back to the spiritual domain and doing things that are quite literally good for your soul and doing things with no expectations whatsoever. They say that the three worst things someone can do um, is to assume, judge, or compare themselves to another person. Now, um, obviously we can talk about that for much longer, but as far as the compare piece goes, 
if you're scrolling through Instagram after finishing a workout and you're eating, you know, like lean foods and whatnot, which is obviously wonderful, but you're looking at people on Instagram with like rock hard abs and perfect immaculate bodies whom obviously are very blessed to be where they are in life. Unfortunately, you, you may not be subconsciously doing yourself any favors. I think that uh, and when I read this article, I really took it to heart because I recognized that with my body type and with who I am, I was taking that spiritual component, which, as I've said many times, should have no expectations whatsoever, and subconsciously making it to the point where I expected something of myself, to the point where, you know, carb cycling and doing tons of sit-ups and going for multiple runs every single day. I was losing that spiritual part of me because I was getting lost in my expectations, lost in my crazy eights, and lost in those three worst enemies that I just mentioned. I think that the, the main thing that I tell my clients is, and I think that everybody should know, is that that physical fitness should have nothing to do with how you want to look in regards to like a celebrity. It should just be how you feel inside yourself and how and what is giving to you in that spiritual sense. Um, if you're a bigger guy like me or, or a bigger girl, whatever it may be, as long as you are getting that spiritual component out of working out, it does not matter what you look like. Because if you're not stable in your mind and your heart and your soul, you're not going to be stable within your body. I think this is my favorite podcast I've done so far. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like you are coming back. <laughs> Happy to hear it. I am just like soaking all of this up as I'm sure anyone who listens to this is going to as well. Um, because I want to respect your time since it is well past my bedtime. Just kidding. <laughs> but it's like an hour from my bedtime. <laughs> um, where can the good people find you on social or contact you if they have questions about any of this? Where can they find you? Yeah. Um, well, I, I can give out my work number because I, um, I, I, use that to reach clients on a, like I said, weekday basis, 9am to 9pm. That is 720-819-7268. And um, you can also reach me at my email, which is Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T, two L's, one T, at Life Recovery Centers with an S at the end. That's Life Recovery Centers.net. If you also have any questions about wanting to um, come to our agency for struggles with not just substance abuse. We, 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 we deal with any sort of client that wants to come in. We are a newer agency. So um, we, there are some, some pros and cons to that, which I can discuss later uh, if you were to contact me, but we have an office in Denver and one in North Glen and any info that you want, you can email info at liferecoverycenters.net. We also have an Instagram and a Twitter um, that I run and the Instagram handle is life recovery centers. And the Twitter handle, I believe, is the same thing as well. Um, and any information that you want, we'll be happy to supply it to you. Um, otherwise, I, I guess that that's all. <laughs> that is amazing. Thank you so much for coming on to this. I am sure this is not the last time that we will be hearing from you on this podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to come on. Not a problem, Tori. Thank you so much for having me.